Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, verse 5. Uh, We're uh, working our way through this book together. We've been considering the things that God cares about. And tonight we consider another one. Before we read our passage, I want you to consider this for just a moment. We like it when things go the way they're supposed to. My 11th grade math teacher, I've forgotten his name, but I've never forgotten the man. It was a class called Elementary Functions, which I don't understand because there was nothing elementary about it, and it seemed to serve no useful function at all. Uh, It was kind of a pre-calculus class of some kind, but he'd work up these long problems and then solutions on the board, and on occasion, he'd get to the last line of one of them before he finished it, and he would say, now if there's any justice in the world, this will equal that. And sure enough, you know, he'd walk up and this would equal that. So there must be justice in the world, we would think to ourselves. Well, math feels good. Bear with me, math haters. When things like 1 plus 1 equals 2 and 2 plus 2 equals 4, and it seems to make sense to us, right? Because it, it feels like that's how it's supposed to be. But life doesn't work that way. And when it doesn't, it's confusing, and it's disappointing, and it can be hurtful, and it can lead to significant doubts about God. And God in our text tonight, wants to assure his people that we need not doubt him, that he cares about goodness and evil. He cares about justice and injustice. He cares that the world should work the way it's supposed to. He cares about that. He's doing something about it. From Malachi chapter 2, friends, consider beginning... At verse 17. This then is the word of God. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then... I will draw near to you in judgment. I will be a swift 
witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us tonight, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. We ask that you would minister both the truth of your word and the grace that is in Christ to us tonight. And grant us hope, greater confidence in you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we said, God cares about things being the way they ought to be. He cares that the world should be just as he is just. But that's not what these folks believe. And they've they've worn him out with not just their words, but their whole attitude. He says, you have wearied me. How? By saying that uh, where is the God of justice? By doubting his existence, by wondering what he will do about all the injustice. And so we want to consider this tonight. Uh, We want to consider in the first place the question of God's justice that this raises for us in chapter 2, verse 17. We want to consider the answer God himself gives at chapter 3, verse 1 to that question. And, and think about the certainty of God's justice. And in chapter 3, verse 2 and verse 5, the, the terror of God's justice. But in verses 2 through 4, finally, we want to think about the rescue from God's justice that he here offers his people for all with ears to hear. And so in the first place, the, the, the question about God's goodness And God's justice. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, have we wearied him? Well, here's what they say. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. See, there there are different ways you can ask this question about where is the God of justice. One way is when you believe in a good God, but you don't understand what he's doing. I mean, you ask this question, why hasn't he intervened to stop Things that are bad that are going on. And why hasn't he punished someone for the awful things they've done and they deserve to be punished for? You believe, in other words, this, from this perspective, you believe in God's justice, but God isn't on your timetable. And so you say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to understand. Something like that, I think, is going on in Psalm 73. Where in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist says, I just just don't get it, Lord. Why do some people who do terrible things, why do they sometimes have the easiest life? And then he goes on to say, and then I entered the sanctuary of God and I saw their end. And that those who are far from God will perish in Psalm 73. And so he concludes, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. 
So that's one way to ask the question. But there's another way, and it's in Revelation chapter 6. It's this picture in Revelation of the, the martyrs who have been killed literally for believing in God and his gospel. And they are, they, they are at the altar and they are crying out in Revelation 6, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What a question, friends. They believe in God's justice and his goodness, and they're in heaven without sin. They simply want to know when is God going to bring justice? Because their deaths for believing in Jesus, those deaths were wrong. I can imagine the Chinese man I read about this week feeling this way. He had, he, uh, a missionary uh, went to his home, and this old man bent over, invited him in, but at the same time couldn't keep his hands and eyes off the old man's equally elderly wife. In other words, the visitor was surprised at all the, the, the displays of affection between this elderly couple, and, and a guest actually explained. This couple had been engaged And then the man had been arrested, and for 30 years he'd been held in prison for being a Christian. He had gotten engaged before the arrest, and every year they said to him this, you can go home and get married this year if you will just renounce your faith. And every year he replied to them, how can I do that when Jesus has done so much for me? And eventually, after 30 years, he got out and he went home and he had a tremendous affection for his bride who had waited for him. But you can imagine him asking the question all those years, where is the God of justice? The persecuted cry out for that rightly, don't they? I wonder if some of us, uh, if, if we've come to see the brokenness of this world and the injustice of what goes on in it and, and in, in such a way that it makes us mad and we just want it to end. Maybe you've, if you've been on the, the bad side of the crimes mentioned in verse 5 when God talks about these sorcerers who, who maybe in your experience somebody led you astray from belief in the true God and told you all kinds of lies based on magic and superstition and horoscopes or other things uh, or or maybe you've you or a loved one ha- has been hurt by someone running out on their spouse or enticing another spouse or maybe if you've been slandered with false accusations or maybe if you've been a day laborer who got cheated out of his wages at the end of the day or maybe Someone took advantage of you when you were vulnerable, like a widow or a child. Or maybe you've lived in a foreign country and the native population oppresses and cheats you because, well, you're not from around here. Then maybe you've cried out, where is the God of justice in this world? And I want to say to you very quickly, but guard your hearts with that question, friends. Wisely does uh, Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11 say, quote, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set 
to do evil. In other words, it's easy to be led into evil when you think evil goes unjudged. But these ways of posing the question isn't what's going on here. Their question isn't sincere like all those other ones. This question is deeply cynical and mocks God. That's what they're doing. Here's their thinking. Where is the God of justice? I mean, if he existed, he'd have done something by now. So he must not exist. Or if God exists, he's not really just because he he really doesn't care about what's good. In fact, he must approve of evil. He must call evil good and good evil because he clearly doesn't care about evil or else he would have done something to stop it. And he doesn't care about what's good or he'd have done something to guarantee good. So, So he doesn't exist or he isn't good. Either way, Malachi sees it as a slander against the true God of Israel, who is both just and good. One one way contemporary people put this is to say, well, you know, evil exists, therefore God doesn't. Because if God exists, he would be huge. He he would be in charge. He'd be able to do something about evil. He would care to do something about evil. He'd want to. And so, because evil exists, such a big God doesn't exist. One flaw in that way of thinking is this. It assumes too much. It assumes that we can know that God can't have reasons to allow evil to continue. But that's an odd assumption. If we are assuming there is a God big enough to deal with worldwide evil, and we're mad at him because he doesn't do it, then it follows that he's so much bigger than us that he, must, he might just have reasons For letting evildoers do evil, reasons we may know nothing about, but his reasons nevertheless. Listen, if he exists, and and I'm not doubting that, but if he exists and he's big enough to stop evil and you're mad at him because he hasn't, you can't say, well, he doesn't exist or that he necessarily loves evil. You can say he may have reasons I don't know about for allowing evil, even as he loves what's good. So Malachi says to them, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And notice the arrogance of their their whole attitude. They were sure they were right with God. They were sure if God would show up, well, then all those other people would get what was coming to them. But they, of course, would be spared. But in any case... The Lord answers their question, however insincere or insulting it is. And he says this, I do care about injustice and justice, about good and evil. You bet I do. And let me tell you my plan to deal with it. Either I'm going to clean it up or I'm going to wipe it out. That's what he says. Either I'm going to purify those who do it. Or I'm going to prosecute them in my judgment. But neither will happen as quickly as you and I think. Because God's not on our timetable. He's far more patient. So then notice the certainty of God's judgment here at verse 1. The certainty of God's God's answer to them them is, where's the God of judgment? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way. 
before me. This is God's answer. Um, the certainty of his judgment. In a movie with Kevin Spacey, there's a character, his character says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. And I think that's close, but, but not quite accurate. The first trick the devil ever, pull, devil ever pulled was when he deceived Eve into believing the lie that God would not judge rebellion. God had said to Adam, don't disobey or you will die. And Satan just said to Eve, you won't die. And what he did is he made God out to be a liar who wouldn't really punish rebellion. Judgment is the first doctrine denied in the Bible. Well, these folks have fallen for that deception. And God, to convince us all, says he's definitely going to bring judgment. And to prove it, he tells you ahead of time how he's going to do it, by whom he's going to do it, so that you'll believe him when he does it, so that you'll know he's at that work. And so what you have here in chapter 3, verse 1, is a prophecy predicting the coming of Jesus who will come as both Savior and Judge. This is what the, the, it means when it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of my covenant in whom you delight. Listen, there's three individuals in that text. There's the first individual, I. Behold, I send. Who's that? Well, he's identified at the end. He's Yahweh. He's the Lord God Almighty. Right? He's going to send. There's a second individual. It's Yahweh's messenger who prepares the way. Uh, he prepares the way. This is the practice of the ancient kings. Before they came to a town, they sent a messenger and said, Look, I'm coming. Shape up. Get ready. Make things nice. I'm, I'm going to be there. And so uh, kings would do that. And likewise, God did that because he's going to come to his people. And we know from Matthew chapter 11 that Jesus says that's about John. John is the forerunner, the messenger. He quotes, in fact, this very text and says, John did that. He came ahead of me to prepare the way. And so what does that make Jesus? He makes, that makes Jesus the Lord who comes to his temple. And in fact, that is his name. Lord, and the temple is said to belong to him. He will suddenly come to his temple. And who is the owner of the temple? Well, God is the owner of the temple. And Jesus is saying, I'm the owner of the temple. That's because Jesus is God and he is with God and he is like God and he is sent from God. And so you have here what we're saying is there is no doubt about the identity of this messenger and forerunner or the one who follows him. It is Jesus. The New Testament makes that explicit. Jesus, in other words, fulfilled the prophecy, and so you can believe this. I know that doesn't explain how that's God's answer to the question of, you know, where is the God of justice? We'll get there. But I'm saying to you, you can actually believe this stuff. And in fact, the Bible says you have no excuse not to believe in God's word at this point, even about his word of judgment, because he's followed through on what he said he would do in answer to the question. So I would say to you, don't let the devil deceive you and pull you into the judgment that he will experience before God by dragging you with him in that. Don't do that. And so you see in the first, second place then the, the certainty of God's judgment. It comes with Jesus. 
And you see something of the terror of it in verses 2 and verses 5 in, in a couple different ways here. He goes on to say, but, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who could stand in his presence when he comes? And the, the people then, of course, were assuming that, oh, I can stand. He's going to judge everybody else, not us. But, the, but Malachi is, is saying this, nobody can stand in his presence. Who will be left standing, like in a battle at the end of the contest? Who's worthy to stand in the presence of the Holy One of Israel when he comes to judge his people? No one is worthy of that. And I I just found it fascinating to me that in John chapter 18, in the story of Jesus and his disciples, when they went to the garden before his arrest and betrayal, in fact, it's in that garden that Judas betrays him. And Judas goes off and he gets a band of soldiers in John 18, 1 to 6. And he gets some of the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. So he's got the religious leaders and they bring lanterns and torches and, we- and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that, they, that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I think you could look at that at one of two ways. This is either a a great dramatic comedy scene where Jesus steps forward and says, I am the one you're seeking. And they, maybe because of maybe what Judas had told them about him, you know, they brought swords and everything else. Maybe they, Jesus is going to be this overpowering figure. And they all sort of take a step back and bump into each other and fall down. And I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Jesus has actually said, I am, which is the Old Testament name for God. And he has, I think, unveiled for just a moment his glory as their creator and maker and judge. And they take a step back and they fall to the ground because nobody can stand in the presence of the unveiled glory of God in all his holiness. It's amazing Jesus then allows himself to be arrested, but he does. And uh, as well, I do think you see something of the terror of the, of the Lord's justice in verse 5 when he says, I will draw near to you to judge, for judgment. I will be a swift witness. And, and that word swift, interestingly, uh, should be understood as expert witness. In other words, an expert witness cuts through the cloud and the fog because they're skilled. And so they make quick work of testifying. I mean, they don't have to be coaxed or coached or led along or kept on track. They just get in the witness stand and they tell it like it is and they say what's completely believable because it is true and nobody can doubt what they're saying. And, and God is saying, I am going to be that to you, a, a skilled expert witness for the prosecution against you. Against who? Well, he goes on to list a number of the kinds of people who, are, who he's going to prosecute. He speaks of sorcerers who say false things about God and adulterers who are unfaithful in their relationships and people who bear false witness or tell lies and people who cheat others out of money or, or miserly in, in generosity. They don't even pay their bills. People who take advantage of the weak and the helpless and the defenseless and people who deny the rights of aliens and strangers and oppress people who aren't like them and 
people who take selfish, selfish advantage of others. And this list, friends, I don't believe is in any way exhaustive. It's just walking you through some of the commandments and our failures at actually being obedient to God with regard to the commandments. And it all has its root in what? Well, he sums it up. They do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That's, that's where all your other sins come from. There is no fear of God before our eyes. If they did fear God, they wouldn't do these things. And Proverbs 18 verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Every time you find yourself actually loving what is evil, you tell yourself, I do not fear God in this moment. Romans chapter 3, 18, Paul indicts us all and he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And he's talking about all of humanity. That's why we do these things. So this is the terror of his justice. We're all guilty. And the Lord who sees it all, acts as a witness for the prosecution. He is the judge, he is the prosecutor, and he will give testimony because he's seen it all. He knows it all. He has an infallible memory, perfect recall, a photographic mind, and he has never missed a moment of your life. That is a terrifying thing. And yet, God, in great kindness, offers you a way of escape. He offers you a rescue from his judgment. And you see it in verse 2 through 4. He actually said it first. Uh, he, he, he warned you that nobody could stand. And then he offered you a savior. And then he says Jesus will come as judge. In other words, what you have condensed in 2 through 5 is both comings of Christ. You have him coming to be the purifier or the refiner, the the savior of his people, verses 2 through 4, followed by the condemner of all whom he prosecutes for their sins, who are not saved. He will do both works, and you have there the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, primarily both. So, So let me ask this question, then how does he purify? He is, it says in chapter 3, end of verse 2 and following, he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier. What's that talking about? Silversmiths of that time, to purify their silver in small furnaces, they sat looking over the top of the metal in the furnace as it was heated up, and they would watch the impurities rise to the top, and some would be burnt off by the heat, and others would be sloughed off because they were lighter than the pure metal below, which would sink to the bottom. And in Jesus, the Bible says, God purifies the priesthood and its offerings. The sons of Levi, he says, are going to one day offer me pure offerings in righteousness. In other words, Jesus is the one perfect priest and the one perfect sacrifice that brings purity in the worship and service of God. And Jesus did this for all who come to God through him. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says this, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He made purification for sins. He did it. It's done. 
Not for his sins, but for our sins. What is the result of that? Perfection. The the Levites here are symbolic of the cleansed and sanctified church. And we now make our offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Why do I say that? First Peter, in many places, talks about how the church has replaced Israel. And in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, Peter says this about you. As you come to him, to Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The offerings, in other words, will be in perfect alignment with what God requires. Our offering to God needs to be perfect. We need to be perfect as we offer it. And Jesus offered himself like a lamb without defect. And he was accepted. And he offers himself to you to be your offering to God. Just tell the Lord you have nothing to give him. Nothing to make up for your sin or merit his acceptance, but what he has already provided for you in Jesus. You have nothing to give God but Jesus, and God accepts it. God accepts him, and he accepts you and everything you offer to him through Jesus. This is why he, in in various places in the Bible, it says we Christians, we offer sacrifices of praise for Jesus, or we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, or, or even our money is offered as a fragrant offering in service to the Lord. All our personal offerings, all your efforts on behalf of the Lord in any way are made acceptable. How? Not because you are, not in yourself but made acceptable to God through Jesus. That's 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5. So Jesus did this for you, to purify you. And Jesus is doing this in you as well. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, By a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He perfected us, us who are in the process of being sanctified. He's doing this with Christians, friends. He's making us like himself, and he won't quit until he's done. You ever been to the dentist, and you got more than you bargained for? You thought you were going in, you know, for a toothache, but once the dentist got in there and he gets a good look at everything, you know, you suddenly uh, need a tooth extraction, deep tissue cleaning, three cavities filled, a root canal, a titanium post, a porcelain crown, and braces. You ever had, well, something like that happen to you? Your dentist wants you to have a perfect smile, and he wants to go on a nice vacation. And Jesus isn't done until he's done with everything about you. You went to him thinking, he's going to help me with this real problem I have. And he said, I will. And I'm also going to help you with every problem you have. The refiners of silver knew the purification was complete. How? When the silver in the liquid mirror in which the refiner could see his own face 
was there before him. And when Jesus sees himself in you, and when he sees you are remade in his image without blemish, that's when he's done purifying you personally. And you won't see the end of that in this life. And how does it feel to be treated by Jesus, by the refiner's fire and the fuller soap? How does that feel? I think it feels like something C.S. Lewis described in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's a story he tells, and the opening line, and I love it, is this. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. And he's a supremely bratty boy, and he's entirely fixed on himself. He reinterprets everything, you know, from his own warped point of view. Uh, He blames everyone else for everything that goes wrong and for his own lack of comfort. He's a nasty kid at the beginning. Nobody likes him. He has no friends. And one day on an island, he discovers a dragon's lair of gold. And sleeping on the dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, says Lewis, he had become a dragon himself and miserable. Until he meets the lion, Aslan, who leads him to a pool of water. And he says, this is Eustace saying, the water was as clear as anything I thought I could get, uh, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease my pain. But the lion told me to undress first. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on. When suddenly I thought, well, dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes could cast their skins. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And when I had scratched a little deeper instead of just scales coming off here and there, well, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully as, as if I was a banana. And in a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. And I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was putting my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of that one too. So I scratched and tore again at the underskin, and it peeled off. And the same thing happened again a second and a third time. And then the lion said to me, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself all the other times. Only they hadn't heard. And there it was. Lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he caught hold of me and he threw me in the water and I turned into a boy again. What's the point of that story? Sanctification is God's work and your best efforts will not go deep enough in your life. God has to do it and it will hurt to make you look like Jesus And it's not about just the surface stuff, but it is about your heart. 
And in the end, God strips away what doesn't belong and he turns us into what we were created to be. And he doesn't quit until he sees himself in the mirror of the silver he is refining. So I say to you, friends, does God approve of evil? Not at all. Does he let it continue forever? Absolutely not. Does he let it continue now? Yes. Why? So he can purify a people for himself, even a people as yet unborn. Outside of that saving purification, friends, there is only condemnation. And don't fool yourself. Those whom he saves, he sanctifies. Those whom he pardons, he purifies. Is he doing that in your life? Let's pray together. Father, have mercy on us. We don't deserve any of this saving work, but shelter us under the shadow of the wing of Jesus. Pardon all our iniquity. Cleanse us from our sin. And we ask that you would make us more like Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to stand and we'll sing in response to the Lord, calling upon him.